Well, hey, welcome. It's Paul Gillette. Uh, this is another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Got uh, James Lincoln on board. And tonight we're going to be talking uh, with Bruce Kingsley. He's actually uh, back, you recall, uh, a couple months ago. He's back. He has the uh, 4x8 highly detailed HO layout that has a high-def camera mounted in the nose and a uh, an F7 mock-up cab. He's, uh, we talked at length about how he does this in his uh, YouTube channel, but he sent me a photo of under the scenario of someone had discovered, I guess it'd be just like finding a uh, 47 Plymouth in a barn, uh, found a couple Western uh, Pacific FTA and B units that hadn't been uh, run, just forgotten about. And he used a weathering system from AK Interactive to weather these. And I guess it's something that you find a lot. The military modelers and so forth use it. I, it knocked my socks off. So I said, Bruce, let's talk about this. There's probably other people out there as clueless as I. Just I'm not sure if that's possible. Yes, I th- I'm going to give him, uh, give him no, a credit. Don't. It could be. I, it could be as clueless as me. Thanks for uh, letting me uh, come and talk to you guys again. It was yeah. fun last time and talk about things that are kind of different. Yes. So if you don't mind, I'll kind of jump in. Sure, please. So um, some of the model railroaders may be familiar with a publication that was out a while ago that isn't published anymore, and it was called the Modeler's Annual. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. And it was primarily, you know, larger scale diorama publications, but phenomenal, you know, workmanship of scratch built buildings and some things like that. And that's kind of where my lead in was because uh, I, too, am not into uh, modeling military dioramas. But through going through that and trying to find out techniques and so forth, it lent me down a path uh, to a a magazine that's called Weathering. And it got into just about everything, thing, but larger scale stuff, items that are either you know, 125th or, or 135th larger scale items. And they are just dioramas, a car and so forth. But one of the things that, that caught my attention was they weren't weathering, you know. They they typically made dioramas of, of of things, vehicles or whatever they were that were, you know, completely rusted rust bucket. But the detail equally, you know, was you know phenomenal, and and so I've been looking at those for the for for a couple of months, and just because it was so interesting, and. I just had an epiphany of thinking, God, I wonder if this would work on, you know, HO, um, because everything was done traditionally a lot larger. And so I decided to give it a whirl, and uh, I liked the FT units, and the Western Pacific FT units were somewhat unique in the fact that you know, they recycled their parts from their steam locomotives and and so it had a very unique look to it. And so, you know, I thought I'd 
go get my hands on a, uh, in this case, it was an Intermountain A and B unit that I, I started off with. And I don't remember what it was, but it was what I could get that was essentially the lowest price because I was going to be stripping it down, so I didn't really care. Um, and uh, I will say that when I did this process, the first time around, it didn't work at all. And unfortunately, I was able to strip everything back down and uh, do it all over. But one thing I wanted to um, somewhat make a little bit clear is the process is not necessarily an AK interactive. They're, they're a supplier okay. that makes some of these items. Uh, their big competition is a, is a, a company uh, called MEG. But there's no doubt that they target probably military-type items. But I, what I found is the process and the materials they used was very different than what we do when we weather you know, our trains. And typically that's what we do. We weather them. We still make them look like they're operational. We, it's, not, it's not really common to go and make it look like it's you know, destroyed or completely, you know, inoperative. But, you know, I thought, what the, what the heck that's relating into it. But, you know, we're, we're used to using, you know, different types of airbrushing techniques. And, you know, we use a lot of powder in, in, in our weathering techniques. And, and even in this, yeah, they share some of that. But in other elements, it's different. A lot of it is what they call more enamel-based, but it's really not. It's more like a you know mineral spirits-based type items. But um, the one thing I'll certainly say right off the offset that I learned the hard way because I spent a lot of time doing it the first time just to go and say you know this just looks just like a useless. You know, it, it just came out absolutely horrible, is you really need to, to do the planning ahead because certain steps that you, d you do is very time sensitive. You can't do a certain thing, set it aside, and come back the next weekend and carry on. It, certain steps, it just doesn't work that way at all. Okay. So certainly I can share more about what it is, but I thought I'd give a little break here for yeah, I'm. I'm actually. I can keep on going. <laughs> it, it, it's called. It's called the the uh, the weathering magazine. And yes. they have. I mean, it's it's mainly a an online magazine. You can find it at uh, weatheringmagazine.com. And there's a long backstory. There's AK Interactive, and then there's Ammo or Mig Ammo, Ammo Mig. Um, the backstory is that. AK-47, well, Mig Jimenez owned AK uh, Interactive, and he got divorced, and his wife took AK Interactive. Whoa. AK Interactive is his wife and is not being maintained. So there's a stock of it, and as that gets depleted, she's not maintaining it. Mig Ammo. Really? Yes. MIG ammo is being maintained, so he just restarted it under a new name. And so, really, if you want AK Interactive, you kind of have to. I mean, as long as 
as long as supplies last, you can get it. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it's maintained by um, Meg Jimenez and um, various others. I have various copies, and they they're they're great to view on a on, on a tablet. They're, they're yeah, just and that's actually how I got it. Is is on my on my iPad. I have those. Right. I mean, they have like a magazine. It's just chipping. Right. That's it. It's just dust. There's just rust. And they do different, you know, how to do different effects. And normally, particularly the one in the dust, I'm looking at it right now, um, you know, they are not model railroaders. But they have articles about how to apply their techniques to a model train. And you can tell they're not model railroads by the way they approach it, but that's okay. I mean, you know, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, the the rust one is amazing. Um, the nice thing about the dust one is the dust one is they're really working with in as you said in service models, in service pieces of equipment. Whereas a lot of the rust uh, versions are old, beat up, you know leftover rotting away and then there's you know there's another magazine just on chipping you know how to do chipping effects in different ways and it's a it's an incredible resource i saw someone at the springfield show several years ago do a sequence of events with the you know the mig the ak interactive products so he put on a, you know, he put on one layer. It's very layered, so you know, you, you know, one layer will be acrylic. The next layer will be oil, and the layer that you put over that is acrylic. And it's specifically, you, you specifically do it so that um, uh, you have countering effects because one won't stick to the other very well. I don't know if that's what you found. Well, it is, and that's where kind of the timing goes because, you know, right. essentially for the the main effect, let's say the rust, you know, what you're doing is you're first painting your shell, your underlying rust colors. So right. when you're when you're done, you have this varying shades of rust over the entire shell, and then you use. Um, either a chipping fluid or wear effects. And so I'll tell everybody right now, don't use the chipping because it's, it's too aggressive for our scale. You're going to have just too big of chunks coming off. Um, and I've tried the old school methods, the hairspray, the salt as well, and I, I, I really couldn't get a good effect for HO scale. Um, and I did do some a little bit of experience on on, a, on just a an old box car before I I went and did everything. But yeah, once once you uh, you, you you apply the uh, your base coat, which is your your rust. I did learn that that you do want to make sure it is thoroughly dry. So I gave it a week. So there was to minimize the chance that I would that I would cut through it and get to the bare plastic. Right. You want to make sure every one of these layers is absolutely dry. Well, as you said, the bottom layer, <laughs> the, bo the bottom layer needs to be dry because you'll you can chip through it. The other things, as you say, it's it's all timing. 
And the magazines actually go into it quite well. And he does have a series of videos in multiple languages on his uh, YouTube channel. And he goes through a lot of this stuff. But, you know, I'm looking at the uh, makehimenez.com. And they have a, one of the weathering magazines is Engines and Fuel Oil. Uh, engines and, and I'm, the, I'm not looking at it really carefully, but it, it looks like one of the pieces of equipment that they're weathering in the magazine is an asphalt spreader. Yeah, I have, the, and, I have every one of their magazines. And okay. They're all impressive stuff. That they, yes. Every, every one is, is radically different than what we are traditionally used to. When we do our trains, I mean, there—he's the type of guy. Although I'm sure he's quite expensive, if you were to want him to come to a, you know, convention, I'd love to have him at a, you know, an RPM meet or something, and be able to listen to him and have him do something. Yeah, it's a very different methodology. But you know, you, the way they're approaching it is. They're static models, so they're willing to do different things that sometimes we're not because their stuff is probably never going to be handled much, so it doesn't need to work. Well, yeah. Well, what I'm picking up from both of you guys, and Bruce, you mentioned it in your email. You spent four weeks on this project? Well, yeah, because I knew up front that when I was completed... I was going to be doing a really, really close-up. Okay. And, and that's why ultimately, even though I have photographs out, uh, I, I did a very short YouTube video of it, which is the same images. But since the pictures were taken at such high resolution, I was able to get super close in the, in, in the video where... You know, you could see, you know, just details that usually people don't photograph their locomotives so close as, you know, as I did in this. So that certainly, you know, added to the time because, and one of the things that I, I traditionally do when I do projects like this, uh, I did a, my first steam locomotive a couple of weeks ago that actually uh, a couple of months ago that turned out really well and I was really pleased considering I'd never done a steam engine before you know the favorable um, responses that that I got from the posting and um, I know somebody asked me a question about you know about one of the things you do to make sure it comes out right and one of the things I do is as I'm working on these I take close-up photos all the time so I don't have to wait to the end to see something doesn't look good and so you know even of, of this locomotive I have a whole hard drive full of super close-ups of as I was going through the stages to see you know you know that all the bolts for the grab irons are reasonably close because even under my little magnifying glasses that I wear when I was doing it you know, once a camera gets close, it's like it could look like it's a foot away than it really should be. But because of this, this the chipping, which was a big part of this, certain things you just can't do. And 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 my what I done the first time 
is I did the base coat, put the chipping fluid on, painted it, masked it, decaled it, and what happened is, you know, that process of doing it in the order that we normally would do it in, at the end of the day, things dried enough where it wouldn't chip or wouldn't chip well. Um, and, and that's where the timing comes in. You know, once you, you apply the chipping fluid, as soon as it's, quote, dry, which means, you know, you don't see anything more wet on it, you need to put your, your top coat on. Let me tell you, you know, going and airbrushing that all on. And one thing I do wanted to state um, uh, is after I applied the, the rust color, I used AK's Ultra Mass Matte Coat. It's, I guess, you know, we would normally use like dull coat. But I will tell you, and, and I don't have any of the, the MIG stuff, but from hearing, the, you know, the story we just heard, it, it sounds like a lot of the products are probably the same because they all came from the same source. I will say their, ult, their ultra matte, um, which, is, which is water soluble, so it's not a lacquer, is so matte, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it blows the doors off of dull coat. Um, so when I, after I had painted it the rust color and then put the, the matte finish, I mean, it was just, just so matte, it just stood out. I, so after that was dry, and I, in that case, on my second time, I let that dry for a week. And then, <laughs> and then, because the first time around, I couldn't get a lot of stuff to chip through, and I got to plastic. And so... The second time, after I had my base coat on, I went and air, put airbrushed the uh, weathering effect, which is their the lighter version of the chipping. It's the same stuff. The only difference is it has a little bit more adhesion. But as soon as it dried, I'm back in the paint booth, and I've got you know masks already pre-made up so as soon as the uh, the orange is dry I'm laying down masking for the silver and as soon as it's over there I'm on there putting black on there I mean and and just hoping like goodness you know using you know good quality masking tape that doesn't is gonna pull pull it off you know it's it, it's it's like a race for time, and could not put the decals down because the decal just the process of putting the decals down would start cre creating the chipping effect. So as soon as the 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 black was dry and took the masking tape, I immediately went and you know got the water out, and I didn't use much of a toothbrush because. It would be on our HO. It's just too big. You'll, you'll, it just takes too big of chunks off. So, predominantly, I was using um, like a plastic toothpick that right. I had m made, but it wasn't a hard one. Not like because again, it's it's pretty easy to go through and 
you know, and then you get to the, you don't want to get through to the, the gray plastic bottom and you're going to, you're going to be trying to do this quick, but you know, you're going all over the model, just going and kind of picking it away. And it, it takes the top layer off. And since you're truly taking the paint off, you get truly, you know, chips that are through. Right. So and you, then, get, you get a 3D effect. You do. Because it is and 3D. It, it is. You know, but, I uh, certainly Paul, would recommend, you know, anyone who does it, again, to practice, practice. On, something, on something before because, you know, you take it off the wrong way. It, it's not forgiving. You can't, you know, you can't fix a, it. Take a nice plate girder bridge that you want to rust up nice and easy. Do a plate girder bridge and do that. Don't, you know, don't, I think that's what you're saying. You know, something easy like a plate girder bridge that, you know, it's black. Some, <laughs> yeah, it can be anything. Yeah, it, it's black. It's, you know, it's a rusty black something. And, that you know, if you have a pride, well, I don't really want to practice. Practice on something that's simple, not something that you're going to have to decal and do multiple colors and, and stuff like that. Uh, Paul, if you take a look in the Skype chat, I put on, um, I posted two screenshots of the Weathering Magazine pages. Okay. So you can take a look. The first one is the um, the asphalt spreader. Okay, let me click on it. They also have, AK has also published a couple of books, too. One one that's really good is called Extreme Reality. Um, okay. Wow. And, and I... I'm pretty sure, I think I got that on, on Amazon. And they have one, and I don't have the book here with me, but it was recently published that was on trains. But in that case, um, and I was really excited to get it. It was an expensive book. I think it was $40. And the only thing I'll say I was disappointed was is that it wasn't the weathering. It, it was weathering. And so for a lot of people, it's probably great. Because most people, that's what they do want to do. They they want to weather it. They don't want to go and make a rust bucket. And unfortunately, it didn't get into making you know rust buckets in that in, in that book that they had for doing model trains. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that uh, asphalt spreader is just stunning. Yeah, and I mean, just to show you that this is imminently applicable to. Um, our hobby, you know, even if you say, well, they're not talking about trains. Well, here's another one. Well, the yeah, there's some European prototypes you posted. No, no, that, not that one. This is another one that I was thinking of. Um, this is an extremely useful uh, piece. This is one I have at home, I, on my uh, iPad. And they're still publishing that Weathering Magazine, too, because I, yeah. I, I got, got another one just like a month ago. They got they into some month. of the metal, you know, more of their metal, where they've got their true metal products that they're, it's like a wax. Uh huh. That's, that is, it is wild. It's just an incredible and alternative to going making things look like chrome and stainless steel. And it's, huh? it's a wax that goes on. Huh. The metallic wax. 
Did you get the last one, Paul? Yes, I did. Of the excavator? Yes. Yeah. Why don't you uh, take that link and put it on the Facebook page so people can have a visual of what we're talking about here? The weathering magazine, or you want the screenshot? Yeah. Well, the screenshot, I think, is good because that shows them the magazine plus the detail and the uh, realism that this is uh, creating. Yeah, it, it is a truly amazing, you know, magazine. If people can just get past the, oh, it's armor, oh, it's spaceships. Well, how expensive are all these chemicals and stuff? They're it's not, not cheap. too bad. I mean, I mean, you know, no, they're average, not it's average about eight dollars for each container of product. I would say, which is okay. pretty comparable to what we pay for right. you know, our it, stuff. Right, it, it's comparable to what we're used to paying, but it's not inexpensive. If if that makes any sense, it's relatively because well, yeah, in, in my case, I probably with all the different types of. Uh, because once you got the chipping, then you start getting into the rust effects and the grimes and the other items. So I think, you know, I, I probably, you know, got $150 worth of stuff that I bought. I won't say I used all of them, but they're, you know, at first glance, you think, well, they're just novelty items, that they're just some special colors or something like that, you know. You know, I don't need to go and buy that. I can just go and mix it up myself. They're not. They're, they're, you know, they're they're really quite unique formulated, you know, products. Because after you're done with this, now you just got a shine. You, you got a shiny orange and silver, you know, colored, you know, locomotive just with chips in it. And so at that point is where I after. It had, had dried. Then I put the decal down, um, and then you start using some of their washes, which they're probably a little bit closer to what we're used to using. Um, they are, you know, petroleum-based, so they're like mineral spirits base in them, um, and those are, you know, really good to. You know, to put in all the gro- you know all the grooves and stuff to bring them out, and then you start pre- getting into some, some of their items that are called rust effects. And what it's like is it's it's kind of like a a pigment powder that's in suspension, and so when you apply it, you put it around items and then you let it dry, and it usually takes. For me, it was over an hour for it to dry. And then what you do, and get ready for this, you go and you use a little brush and you push the, the sediment that it left behind and you push it into the corners. So it's like, you know, shoveling your driveway because what it does is it leaves a, pow- you know, a powdery residue behind and then you're using a brush to kind of push it. And what it does is it, it, it again, helps that 3D because you're essentially pushing this little microscopic particles and pushing them up, and it's kind of piling it up. And uh, Well, then once you've done that, okay, so you put it on it in a solution form, 
the carrier evaporates away and leaves the uh, the dust. Very matte, dusty, rusty color. Okay. And they have three colors of it. So okay. You kind of build it up. And then you position it around to get the effect. How do you fix it in place after that? Well, in my case, knowing that you could just get a, your finger and just wipe it right off, um, but at the same content, being very conscious, normally what they tell you to do is to go and put another coat of, of, of matte finish. Okay. But I, I found when I did my first one, we don't have that luxury being at 187th scale okay. because you start losing depth when you start layering too much items up. So in this case, you got to just handle everything with super-duper care as you're putting on your different washes and making sure the washes don't go and take your rust effects off. And so that's where the patience and everything goes. Now, on a positive note, if you accidentally get some, a, a wash or another items on your, let's say, your your rust effects, the worst thing happens is you just do it all over again. You don't have to strip it or anything because it's, it's not really stuck on, if you will. It'll, it'll come right off. And they have dirt effects and grease effects and, and so forth, you know, for their, you know, the, you know, the different that, items you want. That's where it gets expensive. It does, so and, and, and the time. Right. It, it, it's you need good brushes, for instance. Yeah. It's, it's not that each item is expensive. It, I mean, it's $4 for $4.50, $5 for a bottle of whatever effect you're buying. The problem is, or not, not the problem, but the, the it issue, shall we say, is that you need, you need four or five of them to do the whole process. You really need four or five of those items which is neither good nor bad it is just the way it is and it'll last a lifetime though yes you know the bottles that i have as long as you know they keep them tight and so forth you're not you're not going to be using hardly any of the stuff so it'll last a long time so the difference is it's not like i'm sorry it's not like buying a five or six dollar dollar bottle of conrail blue which you may use for one locomotive. You can't use it for anything else. Okay. You know, so, so you have this bottle of paint that's going to languish forever. That I mean, if you have an entire fleet to do, that's great. But it's one color. Whereas these rust effects, generally, you can use it across everything. Okay. Good point. Good point. You know. So yes, it is not inexpensive to buy everything, but you're using it across an entire fleet. As as opposed to one locomotive. Okay. Now, one of the things I really wanted to do, and I did it on a sample part that came out really nice, but, and this is not to knock inter, uh, interactive um, locomotives. It may have been just the one that I happened to get, but the... Um, oh, Intermountain? Yeah. The, the shell on the side... You know where all the all the panels would be. Yeah. The 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 raised amount isn't really high at all, and the rivets aren't. You know, it, it's not like a, like an Atherins, which are like highliner type. You know, where 
Okay. There's a, there's a, there, they stand out more because okay. what I had done is on a uh, on an old F unit sh- shell that I had that was an Atherin that was from my Ultimate Throttle that I'd cut the front off when I first was going to put the camera and a shell around it is um, I really wanted to have the panels look like they're not perfectly flat and you know if you ever see an old you know, F units rusting, those are predominantly the seams around those areas are where you get major rust, where there's, where, you know, you get holes. And so what I had done on my sample piece that came out nice is I got some of that real chrome type foil. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's that, you know, super thin stuff that you kind of, you, you kind of burnish on. And I just used the matte version, and I, I laid that in the little panels. In certain areas, I purposely didn't make it lay perfectly flat. And then I went and painted over it and then cut some of the foil away. And it left, you know, this beautiful tear and gave it that kind of, lumpy panel look. Unfortunately, on this model, I wasn't able to do that because I was already struggling with the fact that the, and I don't know the right word, but those strips that, you know, an F unit has going up and down the sides of it that are riveted that holds all those panels in, mm-hmm. this, this just did not have the depth that, was needed to do that so you know if anyone wants to try that on and on the effect came out you know really good because when i look at my photo from the front you know the front looks nice but the sides are are just too smooth too flat You, you can't even you can't even see the panels and that was you know some of the you know a little bit of a disappointment you know that i really wanted to have it do it but the shell just didn't and so you'd get a different type of chipping effect, in this case, by tearing the foil away. Um, and considering the foil is still thin, it's significantly thicker than, you know, a layer of paint would be. So it looked like, you know, some of the panels had actually rusted through. And... uh and then, you know, finishing it off with, you know, untraditional things like, you know, busting the windows. The portholes are, some have glass fill of them. Some of them have wood, you know, like they got busted out and somebody decided to, you know, put, you know, wood in there. And, you know, even just cutting the chicken wire, you know, I thought that was going to be easy. And, you know, it's stainless steel and, you know, so you're cutting it. And it looks like you cut it, and so you're back underneath, you know, the magnifying glasses with little tweezers, grabbing little sprays of every one of the little pieces of chicken wire and bending them in and out and so forth, so they don't, you know, look like you just hit it with a knife or something. Going back to the rivets, there are people who make rivet sheets, so I guess one of the options would be to take the cast on rivets down with a uh, maybe some 1200 grit pad and then apply new rivets to give you that 
additional relief and detail you were seeking? I mean, it's an yeah, extra step or two, I understand, but. Yeah, the thing that was the biggest items is not just the rivets, but the rivets are on this strip of metal that would be on the reel. Yeah. So it actually protrudes out, you know, on a real locomotive, probably an inch or something on a real locomotive. And then the panels are kind of recessed, you know, within that panel. And that's where I was able to kind of push the foil into that cavity, um, which I know like people would do when they want to do um, like a an E5, you know, one of the Zephyr ones you know, where they want to have that stainless steel E5 look, you know, using the foil, you know, in there, kind of using it in that same fashion. Mm-hmm. Certain things I wasn't able to find, you know, I, 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 the, the, uh, the wagon wheel antenna, I made that. It's actually a wheel I found from a, an N-scale kit for a Chinese one of those little carts that they pull people around, you know, with the two handles. Yeah. So that's that's a wheel from that <laughs> on a piece of brass that I just trimmed down. And the number boards, those are steam number boards, and then the, the little bracket that holds it up is just a rickshaw? small brass, just some brass work that I did to to hold it all up. So you you took the wheels off a rickshaw. That's what they were. It was a kit, and so uh-huh. it, it was a nice round brass, you know, ring with spokes on it, and, and it was just perfect for the scale and everything. Um, there, I know there is some company that makes a wagon wheel antenna. I think it's Detail um, but, uh, Associates, but they no one's got them. But the um, the problem was that when I when I was able to find some of those online, is when you get really close, again, certain things kind of lose their scale. You know, the the spokes and the diam the thickness of it was just too big, and I'm sure that was you know so you could handle it. And you know here this is you know fairly sturdy, but it benefited from the fact that it was made from etched brass, so. That certainly gave it a lot more strength, but I won't deny that, you know, it, you know, it, it wouldn't take anything to, you know, to bend, bend that thing off. Um, and so, you know, the, just the finishing it up is is different washes and products that that are to go to give it the dirt and, uh, um, there. In fact, the only area that I actually used powders. You know that we would, you know, that I would traditionally use on a lot of my other stuff, um, was just on the roof. Is the only area that I used powders. Um, everything else that gave it, you know, its look and, you know, the the dirt running down the side and so forth, is just, you know, a little brush, you know, and using, you know, streaking effects and. In, you know some of their other items you know that they had yeah um, and then when it's all done and the, you know I just use the one coat more of the mat to to seal it all in so um, and unlike the powders 
I did not see as much of the effect that you normally see when you use powders and then you dull coat it and then you go, oh, heck, what happened to all my powder? Um, you know, here I, I saw minimal effects after uh, cover, you know, putting the uh, the final coats, which you do need to make sure it's dry because the these products are all petroleum based and their their matte finish is uh, is an acrylic based product. So obviously, if it's not thoroughly dry, you're going to get kind of a puddling effect. Okay. Now, and you can buy their matte finish separately, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, just because I liked so much of it, mm-hmm. uh, I went and I bought like three bottles of it. Okay. Um, and when I when I airbrush it, I, uh, I, I, in this case, I used uh, um, thinner from. Um, oh, starts with a T. The, the modeling paint, the Japanese company. Tamiya. Yeah, that's probably it. Um, which okay. I've equally have found a lot of their, except for the smell that their paints give off, I've found, you know, again, they're fairly good quality paint. They, and they airbrush. Yes, it is. It is. But it I is. will say the AK stuff brush, airbrushes beautifully. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, it just goes on really good. Well, you know, the photos were, Fantastic. And are you talking when you mentioned your steam? Was that the uh, 2666 Virginian? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I've got the CNO version of that. So you use the same process on it? I did not. I used more of, I used kind of our, more of a traditional. So, but, but I will say I was influenced by the look of it, you know, where, you know, because I, uh, especially like the drive gears, I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time do, working on all the drive gears. I replaced the drive piston because I really wanted it to look real. So I took that one out and just bought an engineering where you can go and buy stainless steel tubing. And I purchased some of that, and I just made a new piston rod made out of real out of the, the real tubing, and then... W- you know, putting grease around things and around the bolt and all the, um, I have a YouTube video of that as well where I'm right up to it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's right at huge, at, you know, scale size, like if you're standing next to it. So, you, you know, the, the drive, you know, all the drivetrain, you know, f- will fill your, your computer monitor so you can see every single bit of detail of, of the, of, of it. But, you know, in retrospect, you know, doing some of those type of, especially the greasing and the grime and yeah. some of that stuff, um, you know, using these these different types of, you know, products, you know, would have probably done, made it a lot easier to do. Because certainly, you know, acrylics are really not forgiving. You know, you put it on, it doesn't take very long to dry, and it's there. It doesn't flow well, you know, where the petroleum types, it's kind of like if you use oils for, you know, a lot of people use oils for weathering and doing, you know, you, you put it on and then you put spirits on it and then it kind of reliquifies it and it kind of flows and naturally goes places. Um, so I, I traditionally never use a, acrylic just because 
the uh, you know if it, if you get it right the first time it's you know it's great. If you don't, it's hard to go back and fix it because it, it's it sticks so well. And then in this case on that photo of the, of the locomotive, I have a um, it I, it's kind of like the same thing that that Ken Patterson does. I have a mini piece of wood that's got track on it and this photograph where I did took this FT unit it's sitting on that piece of uh, wood where I you know did tracks and I wanted to make sure the ballast looked really good for the, and then uh, here in Yakima there's a uh, going up to one of our canyons uh, there's a uh, old abandoned uh, sawmill and so the photograph is just taken in front of it and oh, okay. Just using the just, so and using the the focus stacking process. I think this is this photograph was made with nine shots. Okay. Um, you know, it just the colors and everything because the the dirt that I use in my layout I get from Yakima area, so don't have to worry about the colors matching because it's all the same stuff. Uh, yeah, Ken Patterson, either this month or last month, talked about uh, some of the more popular photo stacking software out there for getting extreme depth of field and what you're describing there. That's an excellent, excellent idea. Well, and nothing looks better than you, you know, using natural sunlight. Sure. Yeah, the, the dominoes, the modules he takes outside, I've got a find a place in the garage to put one or two and then I've been investigating uh, green background software so that I can shoot it in the yard, take advantage of the sunlight and then just get rid of all the uh, landscape planning and, <laughs> and the green. Well, let me tell you another trick that I did where I have a photograph of uh, an E6 that I did that mm -hmm. was outside. And I did it in my yard and where I've got neighbors and everything. And what I did is I, uh, the, I put my platform on an angle, enough of, a, of an angle that the locomotive wouldn't fall off and roll and hit the ground. And I shot up, and it was just of enough of an angle where I got the top of the trees and so forth, but I didn't get the houses and the telephone poles. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, I even thought about taking a couple tripods and stuff up to Lake Pontchartrain on the shore. If I did the uh, the setup and the uh, bridge, I could simulate, you know, the yes, Southern Pacific line that used to come across the, the Great Salt Lake out in Utah. Uh, but I thought, boy, that's a lot of stuff to carry out to the <laughs> to the uh, to the lake shore, especially in some of the areas, because you don't want to be interrupting other people there's a boardwalk people are walking on so there are more secluded places but all these places have caution alligators in the area so you gotta be careful yes now the get looping back to the um, acrylic varnish yes because that's what they call it so we you know we're used to you know dull coat yeah so if you're looking for it you want to look for varnishes okay um they have different varnishes are you talking about the ultra matte varnish? Yep. The ultra matte varnish. Yeah, okay. it is because they have a matte, and then they have one that's called ultra matte. Okay. And it lives up to its name. 
Yeah, the Ultra Mat is I don't know, it's sixty milliliters. It's four four almost five euros. Because all of this, the AK Interactive and ammo is out of Spain, I believe. He's Spanish, I mean, one way or the other. But a lot of this is European stuff. So, you know, if you order it, you can order it through Amazon, I believe. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I found the Ultramat varnish. Uh, it's just, it's you know, we have a different terminology. So, in their parlance, it, they're called varnishes. Now, ammo also has a matte varnish. Um, but I don't know. It's not an ultra matte varnish. It's also an acrylic flat color. Okay. Uh, 17 milliliters. Yeah. So the, 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 um, the AK interactive is a much better value. Well, you know, okay. That's an interesting point about just the terminology of one country to another, because, when you read a lot of uh, Pelly Soberg's articles, especially his weathering when he's doing extreme weathering, he always references, well, I mixed my pigment with uh, clear varnish. varnish. So it's probably a product like this. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. I presume okay. that's what it was, but yep. he never it's... translated any of the articles, but I... Okay, well, good, because he, he does some nice stuff with rust streaks and stuff just by applying pigment uh, and then doing a slight wash and stuff over it. Okay, so we ordered this via Amazon. I believe you can. I did, I'm looking at the AK Interactive site right now. Okay. Now, it, what my earlier comments about the you know supplies running out, I'm not 100% sure whether that's accurate or whether the – She's just not expanding the current line. She may be maintaining what's already there and just not adding anything new. Whereas if you go to MIG Ammo, he's constantly adding new stuff. So that may be the difference. Is It's not that AK Interact is going to go away. It's just that don't look for anything new and exciting out of it because that's not really what she's going to be doing. Okay. Well, and I used his... Uh Patterned pigments before the MIG product. Big very, commands, yeah. very yeah. good, very intense colors. So I like it. And one of the, the latest items that I got that, it, it, again, was this, uh, I think it's called True Metal, but it comes in tubes. Yep. It looks like oil paint tubes. Okay. Uh, but yet the but the substance that comes out is probably the consistency of whipped cream. <laughs> and um, it's, it's like a... A metallic suspended in wax, which I don't think is a new thing. I think it's been in craft stores used for other things. Okay. But you, especially if you use like the steels and some of those other items and you put it over some of the parts, you get kind of two effects. One is since the, it's really suspended metal, you know, you can't get something that looks better than metal than using real metal. Um, it does have a sheen to it. Uh, it is amazing that if you use their chrome type and you just rub it on with your fingers, you you could almost get away with using it as a stainless steel side. It's quite amazing. Um, you buff it like you would your shoes, you know, because it's got a wax in it. 
Okay. Um, but again, you, you you have to seal it because it, it never will totally dry. And if you handle it, you're going to get either fingerprints in it or you're going to get colors on all, all of your fingers. And I'll also warn something else. Use a different set of brushes and use a separate bottle for cleaning after you use that because it's almost impossible to get it out of the brushes completely. And it's almost hard, almost impossible to get the residue because it's probably the wax in the jar with your spirit. So I, kept, I have a separate set of brushes and a separate jar of mineral spirits just for using that uh, metallic wax. Words to live by. Yeah, I hate it when you can't clean the residue out and you contaminate your next batch of, of paint. Well, or you spent 10 bucks on a good quality brush. and Yeah. So, I hate that. Now, have we pretty much covered everything you had in mind uh, here, Bruce? And then you had listed some other items you wanted to talk well, about. Well, I was just going to go ahead and do a quick other items on the on the throttle project. Sure, go right I ahead. I have done I have done stuff, but I I I I just haven't posted anything. Okay. Um, of any substantialness since, you know, my major reveal that we did, I had some little nickel and dime stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I I got a lot of comments on was my uh my signaling um and i'll admit you know i i had really no idea what i was doing i just thought that'd be a good place to put a signal <laughs> um <laughs> but you know when so uh, many people you know watch the videos and uh you know there are a lot of rivet counters people out there okay there was a lot of a lot of people to you know let me know what was wrong so um I reached out to some people to get some advice on how to redo it, and uh, I re-signaled the layout. Though I will say it's overly signaled, okay. but at least it's. <laughs> but um, I really kind of wanted to add more interaction because, you know, going around for a while, you know, it was really kind of cool at first, but you know, going around the same circle for a while kind of lost its thrill. So I was like, okay, what can I do to make this more interactive? And so uh, I, not only with the signals, but uh, I uh, massively increased my ability for the JMR software to go and detect where, uh, you know, occupancy is. And, okay. And when I first started, when we talked about the last throttle, project i think i had four locomotives that made everything go yet yeah i and it's now down to two and and a lot of that was because i don't know if you remember but one of the challenges i had was trying to get the locomotive to go slow enough mm-hmm. and equally i i really wanted to have it more responsive so i could create the simulations of being you know if you put the brakes on too hard and you start getting plowed in from the rear and those kind of things. With a with a regular train, you know, drive system, you can't get those type of responses. And they're designed that way. They put big flywheels in them purposely to make it so they can't do jerking effects. Um, 
but I went to this company, and uh, I'm going to need you guys to probably correct me here. Uh, it's like a Stanton Drive, or I'm probably getting the name wrong. Yeah, no, Neil Stanton. Um, so I contacted them, and I asked them if they could kind of put put together a custom gear set that was essentially as slow as it can possibly go. <laughs> and so that is actually now in the same as with the camera is now. So the quote, the pusher that I used to have is gone. And I was able to kind of hot rod that, you know, that the control for that, that drive enough where in the software, if I go and detect that I'm getting hit from the back from stopping too hard and yeah. rail cars hitting, or when I'm pulling out and I'm calculating um, coupler slack and it's creating a jolt, uh, I can now re I, I now am able to reproduce that where you can see it in the camera, and of course it's reproduced with the uh, the vibration transducers that sh you know shake it that you can you you can feel it, and then on top of that, um, I was able to uh, get a. a just the the bare controller that would normally be in an Arduino inside this thing as well, and a three-axis accelerometer. So, you know, even our best laid track on our own model of trains, they're, they're not level. And, of course, when you're looking out a window into a 43-inch monitor, you can clearly see the train rocking, you know, your locomotive rocking when you're going over, you know, some of your rail joints and so forth. And so the accelerometer picks up that motion and trans and sends it back to the ultimate throttles. So you get the the banging sounds and the creaking sounds that are equally synchronized with you know the rocking motion of of the locomotive as you're traveling around. And then to kind of top it off the uh, the front has a, a coupler that extends far enough so it looks correct with the camera that I can go and couple up and uh, I was able to find this uh, small Chinese made micro solenoid that's uh, you know it's about three millimeters and uh, in the cab, I can go and tell it to uncouple it, and you know it just goes and pulls the the coupler away. So, so now with all the sensors and all that fed into the uh, into the JMR software, um, the little bit I have done, you know, if if you're heading into an area where you know. Um, you need to be in a standing or so forth. The uh, um, the dispatcher comes across the radio and gives you instructions, you know, to do things. And and once it clears, based off the JMR software, seeing whatever was opposing in another area and so forth, he comes back on and you know you know tells you to do other items because it knows every. I think it's about. Every nine inches of travel on my layout, the computer knows exactly where the nose of the layout is. Even so, you know, other items in there may be drawing current. It knows where the nose you know, always is. Okay. And so 
you know, somebody who is more knowledgeable and into operations type items because, you know, I know a lot of people had commented how boring it would be in just running around in circles. And so, you know, with, you know, merging that with, you know, JMR software, which a lot of people use, you know, you can create your own operations, if you will, without having to have, you know, all your buddies over. Well, but, you know, you do what uh, you have space for. Uh, not everybody's got a huge daggone train space that they can do. And and maybe they don't want to belong to a club or something like that. So after watching what you had done, especially the way you approached the uh, body vibrating sound approach, I thought, you know what? You enjoy the scenery. You've done it well. So if that's fun for Bruce, then so be it. I've got, uh, I finally was able to power up the uh, inside main line just before uh, we started recording. Cause I did drops all day and got stuff hooked up. And I went, boy, this is nowhere near being at an affair with trains where you know, a couple of us have built that 25 by 18 uh, railroad. So you got to rethink. Boy, I can't put a big boy on here with 50 uh, wooden stock cars behind it because it'll be uh, chasing its tail. But you rethink what you're going to model and, uh, you know, you just operate within those constraints. So, heck, you don't have to make any apologies because your trains go around. Well, and I think that's probably why some of those things I do is because it is so I I do have such limited space. Mm-hmm. You you kind of explore doing other things to to try to draw more out of the hobby because you know the, having a larger layout gives you other opportunities to you know to to fulfill your time doing different projects. That's right, and like where you went in and really got finite with your scenery and everything like that that's that's probably how I'll devote some of my time whereas before yeah I made trees and I made mountains but you know that was just secondary to putting together trains and running them you know which I still enjoy but yeah I will probably find myself doing a lot more of the detail work and stuff uh, because it's just smaller. It is what it is. So yeah, I, th- I think I think the little thing that that attracts me is to the hobby um, is I like trains. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, yeah, but I don't. Th- I I I can I can say with full honesty that's not necessarily all that motivates me toward the hobby. Um, and probably why, and I'll, I'll probably get hate mail for saying this, is why operations don't really have any, I don't really have any interest in. Um, what I enjoy is certainly the versatility. I, I'm, I love doing scenery. I love making stuff that looks real um, and just doing the different elements. You know, you got the, the scenery, you got, you know, this cab thing. Um, in fact, one thing I should bring up, because uh, uh, this is certainly 
two elements that I'll say were positive elements of that project. One was, um, you know, there's all, there's a lot of talk about the hobby, and you know, the uh, predominantly more senior individuals that are in the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I had had a couple of, I'll say, high school aged individuals who approached me. And one one particular, which you know, I won't mention his name, but it wouldn't take very hard for you to Google and find who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, who, um, you know, com- confronted me and stated that he really wanted to go and try to make some computer controls simulators type thing um, for his PC, but he didn't really have all the knowledge of physics and the math and so forth to really do it and you know, it just wasn't one of his skill sets and and so and he, he's actually in your neck of the woods he's on the he's on the east side of the of the country and uh so you know i i pretty much uh stated well if i tutor you in in math you know and how you figure out mass and you know the engineering items that you won't just drop your interest and and uh, for a year now, you know, I've been you know I'll say tutoring this this uh, individual, which I will also say was uh, you know um, involved his 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 parents you know concurrence as well. But if you know anyone who's listening to this podcast can you know Google like a train simulation controls for your uh, model railroad and you'll probably find this this individual who is you know a high school kid who has you know ultimately created you know a very impressive you know computer program that will enable you to use it to run your train as a throttle if you will and doing all the simulations of the inertias and you know the stuff that I've done in my ultimate throttle yeah. Um, and so, you know, as, as, a, as, as an engineer by profession, you know, there's certainly a, a good satisfaction to go and, you know, you know get you know, the younger generation interested in math, too, because, you know, we all know that, a lot, you know, that's always been a troubling area. Is what's this ever going to do for me? And, you know, I get these emails every night saying, I just can't, it won't, it's, I'm not able to calculate, you know, the, the wheel slippage, and I Googled, you know, to try to find this formula. You know, there was suddenly something that was driving him. And then the other area was um, we have a local museum here in the town of Toppenish, and they acquired the cab of a Baldwin V, oh, heaven, VO 1500 or 1000. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they got a, for a grant to uh, enlarge the museum and attract kids to go, they approached me if they could help make this cab. Yeah. Where, you know, kids can go in there and, and they put big monitors on the windows and they can run it. <laughs> and so right up not, your alley. not necessarily to my wife's liking, <laughs> um, you know, this truck came to the house that had the con- the, the brake stand and the controls, I mean, all the parts. And uh, I have fully disassembled this real 
piece of equi- you know cab control equipment. Yes. It's now ready for sandblasting. It goes back together, and I've done items so all the you know original valves and so forth will continue to feel and move the way they do, but have electrical sensors in them. So you know you can run the you know the real the real stuff. You know, and it has the you know the feel you know of you know moving the big levers and yes. Um, holy heck! I mean, some of that stuff was like must have been like three. The brake stand must have been like at least three hundred pounds. I mean, it was just nuts. Getting that you gonna stuff download there. somebody's uh, sound file of the Prime Mover to add that aspect to it? Well, the plan was to kind of do really the same thing I did with Ultimate Throttle. Okay. Um, because the uh, there's so much versatility in custom programming the lock sound decoders. Yes. Uh, and, you know, a lot. Of, I think predominantly people probably just get their sound files. But if if you if you ever go and actually get their programming software, it's it's very powerful. I mean, it's 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 out of this world. And and I and I program for a you know a living. And uh, I don't know how many people have actually realized the, how different the lock sound decoder is from everyone else's. And the ability for you to completely write all the decision-making code on how you know, the locomotive runs and how all the sound files and everything are all put together and responding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I'll like my ultimate throttle. You know, I plan and you using a lock sound decoder just for the purposes of reproducing the sounds and that's and that's it mm. nothing more so where will this once you've rebuilt this and created this in uh locomotive environment it's going to be at a museum yeah there's a there is a there's a train museum in Toppenish, washington right now okay um it's predominantly steam type stuff that they've got. They're rebuilding a steam locomotive, and they have a, a big selection of old rail cars, and a lot of it's more of the train history of that area is probably what it's more of. Um, but one of their members that was on the east side acquired just the sawed-off end, the cab, of the whole cab. Mm-hmm. And over the winter, they went in a torch and, and bolts and stuff, and took the guts, all the control stuff, and then brought it over to my house. Um, and it's actually been kind of interesting because, I mean, you're talking about something that was built in the 30s. It was originally owned by the Navy, who originally built it, and seeing how, local, you know, the, the workmanship, you know, that went into making these things. I mean, they're, uh, you know, again, as working in the aerospace industry and then seeing how some of the stuff's done, it's it's really quite impressive, you know, what some of these companies did and designing and manufacturing, you know, old locomotive con- control systems. Um, the the smell depleted pretty quickly. That, I think that was the biggest concern is, oh, my gosh, the, the workshop just, I mean, reeks of, an old locomotive, and hopefully it doesn't stink up the whole house. And after getting it all clean and all that, that all went away. But so that's kind of an interesting item. How it, and there are just all kind of spinoffs. 
you know, of, 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 you know, either helping, you know, you know, a, a student, you know, do the math and items and get into model railroading. And, um, the, uh, I did a, uh, a thing on my YouTube to kind of look at the different people that looked at it and, and, you know, I would easily state that maybe 60% of the people that have gone and looked at the ultimate throttle and already has subscribed are model railroaders. The rest of them aren't. And the majority of them are, you know, individuals that are in their teens and 20s and 30s that are just you know, either intrigued by the techno element of it or the form of it's 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 like virtual reality, but it's not computer. It's not like a a video game. It's that marriage between you know, kind of a, like a game, but it's it's more real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm hoping some of those items, you know, again, you know, helps draw. A different audience to the hobby. Oh, I. So I, I think that, that kind you. of sums. So I think that sums up, you know, the notes comments that I had on on that project. Okay. Jim, you there? Are you working yeah. on the dogs? <laughs> no, I'm. I'm here. I was just thinking. I've got to get up early tomorrow. No, I probably should go. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen if I hang up because I'm the one that started the call. I think. No. Well, and I'm and I'm done too. Okay. So we can wrap it up. All well, right. and the other thing I'll, I'll add in here is uh, I'll add some photos to the site, but um, in uh, Reedville, okay. one of the places to which I go, um, they have the they have a pin connected truss bridge that goes over the northeast corridor. It's actually built in 1898. They still use it every day. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, a five-mile-an-hour speed restriction over it. <laughs> um, they're replacing it with a plate girder, brand-new bridge. They're building the bridge in place. And so in one weekend, they're going to lift the old bridge and drop the new one in place. Wow. At the end of August. So I'll try to get some pictures up of you know, a lot of people maybe I took I you know because I have the access to it I have I can take detailed photographs of it. Cool. Now I can get right up and personal. So if people are interested in that, I'll I'll. Um, we'll put it on I'll, the podcast page. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I I kind of need to. I'm turning into a pumpkin. So okay. Well, uh, Bruce, I appreciate your time. Yeah, fascinating I, as always. Yeah, I. Be yeah, very interested Bruce. in doing doing this again. All righty. Yeah, if you uh, take a look at the um, the chat, uh, Paul, I I posted. I'm pretty sure. That, did you see the other two screenshots I posted? I saw one of them that showed me the rust, the paint. Yes. The paint. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. See, that's the type, that's the type of thing that um, uh, either AK or or um, in that particular case, that was MIG ammo. But um, they have these color sets, um, you know, specifically just all different types of rust. Okay. Um, so I'll Google that stuff tomorrow and take a look at it. 
And that's what yeah. you need when you're doing this is inspiration because, like, before I did this, I Googled all over the place trying to find, you know, really rusted-out locomotives so you knew, you know, how how do they really rust. And so you need, you know, good inspirational material so you know what you're, what you're trying to emulate. Yeah, and, and some people may have listened to what you said and said, you know, why would I, you know, I have all these freight cars to do and, why would I want to go through this aggravation, you know, to weather like this? And you wouldn't. This is something either like, you know, you have, in your case, you have a rusted out hulk in the back. You know, um, you know most model railroaders are, can't afford to take a week or two, <laughs> you know, to, to weather one freight cup when they've got 500 of them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, 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 you, you know, you can, but you can apply the principles and everything in a shorter time period and do, or do one or two that are very well done or then, you know, just adapt the, adapt the stuff to, to fit your timeline or, you know, your, your comfort level. So, yeah. And of course, if you're in this case, I was doing what I called extreme weathering, which, so yeah. if you're not, you're you're right. It, it's not going to take that same duration to do, you know, mild weathering, and yeah. it's worth people giving you know a try, a try just some of the other items just to see how they turn out. Right, and and it's there are a lot of tried and true weathering techniques, um, that you know do do a great job. I just, you know, if you want to take your you know the the realism just one step further you you really want do yourself a favor to take a look at these techniques and specifically it's the weathering magazine.com very anyway, good i'm going to hang up now so we'll see what happens when i do if you both get cut off it's a ple- been a pleasure bruce yeah thank you very much yeah right and i get, a- and i'll i'll talk to you hopefully sometime in the future both of you guys